0: Good morning, everybody, and I hope, like me, you're feeling especially thankful for all those people that came and shoveled and plowed and uh, did all that work. It takes an army of people to get everything ready for Sunday morning. And by the way, if you didn't realize it, you are being brainwashed. Now, not necessarily right in this moment, at least I hope not. But you are being brainwashed, and they've they've proven this. They did a study, this was done by the, um, this was found in the archives of pediatrics and adolescent medicine, that children show an overwhelming preference to food if it's wrapped in a McDonald's wrapper. (laughs) And they did this with some preschoolers, they took chicken McNuggets out of the same batch, the same frying pan, if you will, and they put them in two different kinds of of wrappers. They put one bundle in the McDonald's wrapper with all the McDonald's branding. Then they just wrapped some others in just some white uh, wax paper kind of stuff. In every case, without exception, they asked the kids which tasted better. Oh, the one with that McDonald's wrapper on it, without exception. And then they concluded that this study demonstrates simply and elegantly that advertising literally brainwashes young children into a baseless preference for certain food products. That was a physician from Yale School of Medicine. It went on to say children, notice it says children, we'll get on to us in a minute, Children, it seems, literally to judge a food by its cover, and they prefer the cover that they know. You see, these kids, they actually believed that the chicken nugget in that wrapper tasted better, like there was a physical body reaction based on the wrapper that that food came in. And then from an early age onto adulthood, this branding, this directive, and companies know it is telling us how we should think, how we should feel, how we should taste something. And it's extremely powerful. They're telling us what we should love, what matters. And this is maybe the most important part what we feel that we are entitled to have. So we have the mistake of the child believing the food tastes better in a yellow wrapper, but is that really any different than our own believing that we are better people based on the kind of wrapper that we come in, the kind of car that we drive, the kind of house we have, and the particular neighborhood that we live in? And then see, when we feel entitled to something, if we have expectations of something, when we don't achieve that to which we feel that we are entitled, we can expect there to be a certain emotional gap that comes in. And then how do people handle it when they don't reach those certain expectations? And what follows is sadness, divorce. Then you have a whole another coping mechanism. And how do people cope with that? Are they going to turn to food? Are they going to turn to alcohol? Are they going to turn to pornography? And what I want to talk about this morning is how can I be satisfied in Christ? Is he enough? The passage I want to look at this morning, we'll be starting with this passage um, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4-11. through 11. That's a passage I want to read. Uh, I'll also be looking at a few other passages. Ultimately, I want to unpack the carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, We'll be going through that, but I want to start with this passage from Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You may be seated. We're continuing a series this morning called Season Anthems, taking these carols that we've sung for so, so long and diving deeply into them because there are amazing theological themes that we find in these carols, and a lot of them uh, that we sing. Honestly, for, I, I think that we... We say the words, but then there's a depth there that's really hard to understand if you don't take the time to look at it from the scriptures. This morning, we're going to look at the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's some lines there that we sing over that, frankly, I've got to go back and research just to make sense out of what it is that I'm singing. Sometimes when I'm singing that carol, because it speaks of a deep satisfaction in Christ. And what I want to look at this morning from this passage is two ways to be satisfied in Christ. Two ways to be satisfied in Christ. That hymn, Hark the Herald. It's very appropriate today, actually, that we lit the angel candle. That hymn was written in 1739. Uh, It was then revised again by a man named George Whitfield. Originally, the song was uh, Hark the Herald, the Welkin Rings. Well, what in the world's a welkin? I think there's a good reason they changed the word. Welkin was like the old English word for sky. They're talking about the sky ringing with the good news that Christ had come. But the passage, or rather, the carol itself is based on this passage. We, you've heard it once already from Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, speaking about this appearance of this heavenly host. Suddenly, a vast heavenly army appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. So these, these quote-unquote herald angels, um, and, and the title itself needs some explanation, does it? Because hark, okay? It means listen. Listen to what? Listen to the herald. Well, herald just means a message. How are we getting that message? It's a message that the angels are singing. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace and goodwill men so that's the title Hark the Herald the news of the child announcing this message to these shepherds they were finding out in the the fields boy what a night that was by the way that that was common among uh, the people of that time when a child was born the local musicians would come and they would sing at that house welcoming that child into the world So what would it mean, then, for a vast army of angels to come to sing when Christ himself was born? This was obviously a bigger deal. So I want to start out with this stanza uh, in the song itself. It's dense with with theology and meaning. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son. Look at the word Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Now, what's going on here in this stanza? Because I think when you just sort of close your eyes and sing it and you sing sun, you're not thinking of that big yellow disc in the sky. You're probably thinking of the Son of God, Christ being the the Son of God. However, this is talking about something else altogether. And that line is paired with that later line, risen with healing in his wings. See, this comes from Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That's a wonderful Christmas message, isn't it? The "The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Listen to verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Okay, like, well, so what in the world's going on here? Um, see, Malachi is living at a very difficult time in Old Testament history. Uh, he and his contemporaries are living in this uneventful time period. They're waiting. They're waiting to hear from God. The last prophet. It'll be hundreds of years before they hear from God. People are starting to doubt God at the time of Malachi. They've gone through a lot of upheaval. A lot of armies have marched into Jerusalem. They're just now getting things built back. And they're asking the question, God, where are you? Generations were coming and going without receiving all the promises that God had given. And many were doubting God. But the prophet envisions a day that's going to start a new time period for Israel when they are going to experience the sun of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? You see, the sun can blister, and the sun can bring blessing. And they had this picture of the sun. As a matter of fact, in some Egyptian hieroglyphs, you'll see the sun depicted this way with wings stretched out. Uh, That's a picture of the rays going out and healing the land. And this righteous day by the way when we read day of the lord in the old testament we should think of it as a span of time that began when christ first came when he was born and will not end until god comes down and sets up his kingdom finally on earth we actually don't know how long this day of the lord is it began with the first advent advent just means the initial coming of someone important the first advent Being born in Bethlehem, there will be a second advent where Christ will come and he'll set up shop here on earth permanently. This will be his kingdom. This is what the prophet is pointing towards. This rise of the sun of righteousness, that things will be made right, he's saying. like Like the sun spreads its rays out on the land, God's righteousness will come and it'll heal the land. It'll have a a healing effect from all the sin that's impacted everything from the smallest atom to the greatest galaxy in our universe. It needs to be healed. And what impact will that have? Well, that's this picture of these frolicking calves, like an excited little calf trying to jump out of the stall. He said, that's what it's going to be like for us. We'll be strong, we'll be invigorated when this day finally comes because it means the resurrection of the dead. It means no more sin in the world. It means everything being made perfect. We'll be completely carefree. See, we won't fully experience the healing of God until He fully arrives. We are going to live with corruption. There will be corrupt governments. There will be no utopia on earth until Christ comes and rules it Himself. Ultimately, that's our hope. We have hope today because Christ has already come once. He came to die and to free us. But there's still lots of damage from sin in the world. And many of you sitting here right now, you're you're feeling the grief. Because, see, sin brought death, and you're feeling the, the grief You've lost a loved one and you're going through the seasons without them, or you've been abused and you still emotionally feel the impact of that abuse. There will be ultimate healing. You may get some healing now. Thank God for that. But ultimately, it won't be until Christ fully comes back to earth. So then we wait. We wait hopefully for healing, like what's being pictured here in this, in this song, Hark the Herald, like what's being spoken about by this prophet Malachi. The song continues. I want to consider this passage then from Philippians 2 that we initially read. But again, we see this song is packed with important truth about Christ. Listen to the next, this next stanza. Mild, he lays his glory by born that man, man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth mild look at that first line this speaks of Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29 take my yoke upon you and learn from me this is Christ speaking for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls there's one commentator By the name of Bernhard, I think I put this in here. No, I didn't. Bernhard, he said, what can be lighter, listen to this, what can be lighter than a burden which unburdens you? And a yoke that bears its bearer. Imagine somebody came to you and said, look, I've got a heavy load for you to carry. And what do they bring to you but but a whole uh, pile of helium balloons? Well, Well, wait a second. That actually makes you a little bit lighter than you are there. See, this is the burden that Christ gives you. It makes you lighter. And then the second part needs our attention as well. Lays his glory by. What in the world does that mean? Does it mean in some way that Jesus was less than God by laying his glory by? Does it mean that he laid aside his godness? to become human. This brings our attention back to Philippians chapter 2. We read about the example of Christ. In Philippians 2.6 it says that he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Well, what does that mean? Because at first glance it appears that maybe uh, you know, he's grasping for something that he just can't quite get his hands on. He can't seize it. But that's not the case. You could read that passage this way that he did not reg- regard equality with God as something to be held on to for his own advantage. He has equality with God. Paul will make that clear in his epistles. He's still fully God. And then we get to verse 7. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. <clears throat> the big question is, of, of what did Christ empty himself? And what do we do with that word, empty uh, and if he had given in any way if he way he'd given up some characteristic of his deity was he still god now the assumption is that if he says he emptied himself he emptied himself of something however the text doesn't tell us anything that he emptied out of himself notice that there's no something there that he emptied himself of because he did not. Notice that the text doesn't say he emptied himself of something. Rather, he emptied himself how? By taking the form of a slave, of a servant. That's the emptying of Christ, by taking on the form of a slave, of a servant. One commentator, Walvert, says it this way. It is obvious that he gave up the outer manifestation of deity, right? He's not emanating the light that God emanates but the act of assuming humanity and the form of a servant was superimposed upon his deity without taking away his divine attributes i like the way he states it in this last sentence he was like a king who temporarily puts on the garments of a peasant while at the same time remaining king even though it was not outwardly apparent that's the key you see jesus was just as all-knowing and all-powerful after he became human as he was before, he laid aside no attribute of his godness. He was still fully God when he became human. By the way, he's still human to this day. He's a resurrected human. He's got a body that's not like ours, but he didn't lose his humanity. He's still fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. And what did he become? He became a servant. At one point, he even washed the feet of his disciples, the maker of the universe. Another uh, commentator, N.T. Wright, he put it this way, the real humiliation of the incarnation, that was Christ putting on humanity, and the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation, that he could do what he did. I don't think we'll ever fully understand what Christ sacrificed. We know the physical sacrifice, but until we see heaven in its full glory, we'll never fully get what it was Jesus left to come here to earth and become a human. Look at verse 8 and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was the most humiliating way to die at the time. Before someone was crucified on a Roman cross, they'd be forced to carry it all around the city to make one last statement, to say that Rome was right and I was wrong. That was the humiliating part of that death, and Jesus willingly dragged that cross around Rome, even though no one was ever more right than him. He became a human to die in one of the most humiliating ways. See, as disciples, we're called to that kind of service. As a matter of fact, Jesus told people who were following him, the only way you can be my disciples is to pick up your cross and follow me, to do what I'm doing. And this is the irony. It is the most deeply satisfying way to live the human life it is to, number two, it'll be up in just a minute, humbly serve. To humbly serve. We're called to serve humbly. Now, what should we do with this? I want to look at verses four and five. Uh, this is what it says at the beginning of this. Passage, looking at uh, verses 4 through 11, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So I want to close today, um, thinking about how in this Christmas season can you in some way look to the interest of others?